I think today's show we're going to be talking about a very uh, um, a very close friend of yours and someone you've admired for a while. One of the politicians doing the right thing by crypto, the right thing by the US <laughs> that you've been very pretty vocal on. Um, so I'm genuinely curious why you decided to bring her up today. Uh, I, he's talking about Elizabeth Warren, I would imagine. Uh, yeah, I've been critical. I'm actually now I'm on a, a mission to get her on the show, which I know will never happen, but I'm tweeting at her every single day. This is day one of me tweeting to get Elizabeth Warren on the show. This is day two of me tweeting to get Elizabeth Warren on the show. I know we have a lot of fans of her uh, here, so it's going to be, you know, I'm sure very, uh, <laughs> very controversial uh, takes, but uh, we will get into that, I think, momentarily as a, as a few more people file in oh my god man i can't i know dave dave weisberg i know you you always have some choice words uh that we like to share i would love to get scaramucci up here for that topic because he's a a lot of fun whenever we get into her but uh yeah should i uh go ahead you want to you want to launch i can give a quick market update then we can get into it yeah guys so so this is the 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 uh, what do we call our show the crypto town hall so we do this we did it yesterday on my show today on scott's tomorrow on rands so we're gonna i don't know what do we call the show crypto seriously is that what you just said what do we what do we call the I I keep I, I keep I keep calling it I have called it many different things over the last look Ryan I forget your name every few days so like, you can be happy that I'm remembering the show, uh, but let's go back to the to the you know what it, is? Uh, it must be it must be that it must be an oxygen mask thing that you, bro you wear on Twitter Ryan 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 your name is not the easiest to remember Scott is basic um the 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 ah oh, the update um just kind of an intro. You've been on the show yesterday, most likely. So we're just rotating it between different accounts, playing around. Today's going to be on Scott's account. And uh, we've got a pretty killer panel. You can see all the panelists here. We have Ryan Salkis joining in a bit. Uh, and Anthony Scaramucci as well. And um, yeah, we're going to be talking about um, uh, uh, Scott's favorite politician. We're going to do a quick market update. Um, and what else, what else is on the agenda today, Scott? We're going to be talking about SBF fighting back, obviously, the opening of Hong Kong today. I think because we have uh, Eleanor and John, we're obviously going to talk about the status of the Ripple uh, action with the SEC, get more deeply into that. I think, and of course, the uh, the conversation will take its own turns, I'm sure, sure later as we add more guests and continue on. But I would say those are the main topics for today. A quick question, um, and this is not me, uh, I, don't, I genuinely don't want to show, actually, first let me show Rand's show. Rand's got an incredible YouTube channel called Crypto Banter. If you just want to hear Rand speak for two hours, check it out. It's genuinely one of the best, uh, on a serious note, it's one of the best shows there is in crypto. And I've been watching it for, for, for a pretty long time. Um, but so I'm mentioning, I'm shilling Rand's show just so I can mention this. It doesn't sound like a shill. I've got Vivek uh, Ramaswamy who comes on my show a lot. And he's coming today at, uh, 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 on, on the show. And my question is, do you know what his views are on, are on crypto? Should I press him on that? He wants to come in and talk about China and and U.S.-Chinese relations and Elon's visit to China. But um, I, I never thought to ask him about crypto and never did. Should I? Or he doesn't talk much about it? I mean, he was at the Bitcoin uh, Miami 2023, I think. Um, and I think he spoke at Bitcoin Miami 2023. I think he's uh, bullish on, on freedom and uh, and super bullish on Bitcoin. Oh. Definitely. Oh, okay, so... Yeah. I think maybe I think maybe a good format I think maybe a good format is maybe I should just kick off yeah just quickly cover what we spoke about on the show yeah I think it's good I think it's a good yeah yeah always I think it's a good way to start Rance just say mention your show mention your YouTube channel and then give us an overview it's a good way to mention it and and uh, brief the audience as well for anyone that missed it yeah we, we we try cover you know the biggest news of the day so I think a couple of things that we have covered that we that we covered today. Uh, we started. We started off uh, being very disappointed that we didn't get one June Hong Kong 
China, Asia, that everyone promised us. I'm being sarcastic for those of you who don't know that I'm being sarcastic. Um, because today is the day that Hong Kong officially opened a retail trading for invest for retail investors. Um, but I think it's not, I think what, what the market now realizes is that today is the day that the applications start going through and that it's not actually uh, the day that all the trading starts to happen. Right now, there's two licenses that have actually been issued. One of them has is issued to OSL, the other one is issued to Hash Blockchain. But then uh, you've got all the other exchanges like Huobi, OKX, Ibit, BitMix, Bitmark, Gate, BitGit, all that have applied uh, for that. So we spoke about that. We covered the debt ceiling. So the debt ceiling, I think, as we know, has been passed by the House. It's now going to the Senate. And what I said about the debt ceiling is that the debt ceiling has been passed and now the real scary stuff actually begins. And the reason why the real scary stuff actually begins now is because now Treasury has to raise, has to, has to go out and replenish its account. So for those of you who haven't been following, what effectively happened is the Treasury account ran out of cash or is running out of cash. Last reading that I've got, they had $38 billion worth of cash in the Treasury account. And that's the account that the government effectively uses to pay all its accounts. Now, while they were waiting for the debt ceiling to be increased, they replenished all their funds. And now they basically need more money. So the way I, the way I said it on the show is I said that the first part, the debt ceiling negotiation is like when you're at home and you go to your wife and you say, look, honey, you know, we've got $200,000 worth of debt. I want to take on more debt to fund our lifestyle. Can we raise it to $300,000? And the, you know, the first thing your wife says, are you crazy? We, we can't have debt. We want to have more kids. We definitely can't take on more debts. And then you negotiate and you know, eventually she says, okay, you know what, honey, we can take $250,000 worth of debt so we can increase the debt. But now what happens is you actually have to go out there and get the debt. Um, and that's what's going on now is now they have to go out and actually get the debt. Um, and that means taking liquidity out of the market. So, you know, they've got to go and sell T-bills. Um, uh, they've got to sell T-bills to try and, and and raise this this capital. And people say that they wouldn't try and raise about a trillion dollars to replenish the account, which means that they're going to take a trillion dollars of liquidity out of the market. Now, I played a clip from Jerome Powell before he was head of the Fed. And in that clip, he said, how do you get people to buy T-bills? Well, effectively, you crash the markets. And when people leave the markets, they run into T-bills. And so one of the theories we spoke about is, you know, are they going to, are they going to try and crash the market to drive people into T-bills uh, because they need to raise another trillion dollars in a market where liquidity is pretty scarce? Um, and so that that was one of the one of the other things uh, that 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 we discussed today. Also, one of the things we discussed um, there was a ruling by U.S. federal court that the IRS is within its rights to to access Coinbase user data. A lot of there was a, 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 a suit filed by a guy called James Harper. And uh, he lost the lawsuit. And basically what that lawsuit mean, means is that uh, Coinbase can subpoena trading data for, for users. And I don't think that's anything new. I mean, you know, the IRS uh, should, can subpoena data uh, as much as they want. And then we also covered ETH liquid staking and derivatives, but that gets a little bit technical. So, yeah, it was a big show today. I think it's, it's, it's been quite a quiet day on, on the price front, but quite a lot actually going on behind the scenes.
Yeah, speaking of price, I mean, we're completely flat on all markets. Effectively, the S&P completely flat right around 41.75, Dow Jones 32.754, NASDAQ 12.956, yawn, boring, Bitcoin down 0.32% at 26,879 last 24 hours. So the market, uh, not much to talk about there, as you said, but we can talk about my favorite person in the entire world, uh, who I love dearly. That's obviously Elizabeth Warren, who has pulled off a feat uh, worthy of Evil Knievel. She managed to fit fentanyl, crypto, and China into one single FUD sandwich at one time. All the things that Americans are terrified of in a, effectively one sentence. She came out and said that she needed to stop the use of crypto and funding the lethal fentanyl trade. Guys, this was her quote. I am not making this up. She actually said this in the Senate Banking Committee. This group sold enough precursor drugs in exchange for crypto to produce $540 billion worth of fentanyl pills. That is enough fentanyl to kill nearly 9 billion people, all paid for by crypto. Really impressive because the population of the entire planet, last I checked, was 7.8 billion people, but we are going to manage to kill 9 billion people with crypto-funded fentanyl from Chinese companies. Now listen, there's some truth to this. There were millions of dollars were used to pay for this fentanyl from Chinese companies, the companies, the precursors. That's ignoring the fact I watched Miami Vice my entire childhood, and I don't remember crypto being used in the drug trade in Miami. I remember it being uh, dirty United States dollars, so I don't think that the medium here matters particularly too much. But this woman is on such an anti-crypto crusade, she would literally make up or utilize any FUD humanly possible to come after us at this point. This is so nonsensical, it's making my brain hurt at this point. Brian, I see you have your hand up. Feel free. Yeah, I'd love to jump in on this. This just it infuriates me. Maybe that's the whole point she's going for, but it's she's uh, one of two things. She's either completely clueless or she's obviously trying to mislead people that don't understand how blockchains work. You know, they're, they're, we, as we know here, they're trackable, immutable ledgers, but, and yeah, there's some privacy features, but guess what? Here's the headline. Cash is the most private and anonymous currency of them all. And there is direct evidence that crypto is not superior to traditional money when it comes to criminal activities or drug purchases. That's a fact and evidence-based. So if she really cared about this problem of illegal, illegal activities occurring with people that pay money for drugs, we should be going after cash, not crypto. It's, it's just way more. Yeah, it's just it's so ridiculous. There's no comparison here. It's a terrible attempt at blaming crypto for drug problems to unsophisticated people. We've had drug problems forever. And if it were true about crypto facilitating drug use or sales, it'd be like blaming uh, car makers for people speeding or running people over. So it's just this whole red herring thing. Um, in this whole argument about she also goes into this thing of, oh, it's a form of accepted payment. And she quotes this 450% increase number, but she doesn't really give much data behind it. Um, so it's just, um, it, it doesn't compare at all the traditional cash being used for illegal activities. 90% of U.S. bills carry trace amounts of cocaine. That's from the American Chemical Society. It's it's literally almost laughable. But guys, 9 billion of us are at risk from death by crypto. But uh, Dave, I see you have your hand up. I just want to point out, like, outside of this, it still baffles me that progressives, liberal, left side, and by the way, anyone who knows, I'm unaffiliated politically. I'm critical of both parties. I don't really do politics. But this should be an issue that they take the other side on, obviously, because the entire ethos of Bitcoin and why this was created was to help people who are unbanked and don't have the ability to transact to do that cheaper 
we can get into that more deeply. Dave, I see you have your hand up, and I'm sure you're going to go go in on that. Dave, I don't know if you're there. You can hear me. Otherwise, uh, oh, here, here we go. Yep. Is it working now? Yeah, okay, good. good. Um, yeah, I mean, look, she's following, and I hate to say it because it sounds like I'm being you know, hyperbolic, but she is literally following the following principles of propaganda. Uh, avoid abstract ideas, appear to be emotions, constantly repeat just a few ideas, use stereotype phrases, give only one side of an argument, continually criticize your opponents, pick out one special enemy for special vilification. Now, that sounds like exactly what she does. I, I hate to tell everyone who that's coming from. It's coming from Joseph Goebbels, who was the, you know, you know Hitler's propaganda minister. So, I mean, I'm not calling her a Nazi, but I am saying she's following the same principles. The fact is that the FBI themselves, and I've seen two different FBI agents, love when people use Bitcoin as opposed to cash because it's dramatically easier for them to find the bad guys. And there have been multiple stories where they've done that. So essentially what she's doing is, you know, realistically actually telling the criminals, hey, you know, <laughs> you know, if, if she was successful, then it would be harder for them to catch people because the point about cash is so incredibly obvious. But the big point here is that she she literally is constantly looking for half truths. Yeah, sure. Some dumb criminals use it, but as a percentage, it's radically lower. And it's the same thing as she did with the environment. So, yeah. Bitcoin uses a lot of electricity, but it also is used uses a lot of renewable electricity, a lot of wasted electricity, and it also helps stabilize grids and provide economic incentives for renewable production. But she completely ignores it. So it's literally the same thing. It's always one side, always taglines, always appeals to the emotions. And unfortunately, in today's society, too many people who only read the headline and not the stories, uh, it's can be somewhat successful. So it's really important to educate people. John, I saw you had your hand up before. I didn't know if you had a comment here. Yeah, thanks, Scott. Uh, Brian said that it's one of two things, that either she's clueless or she's she's misleading people. And I can tell you it's the, it's the latter. She's misleading people. And what a lot of people on this call don't understand is how everyone on this call gets it. But when you go to the non-crypto world, her message resonates with the ignorant. For example, I went to a New Hampshire hearing where they were introducing a bill on crypto. And you would be amazed at what these state senators, the types of questions they were asking. They literally were asking, this is just a, a, less than two months ago. They literally asked questions like, but I hear Bitcoin is only used for terrorism and for drugs and for the cartel in mexico and those are the types of uh, people that she's reaching out to so and the other thing i comment i've dealt with senator warren's staff i represent like 400 xrp holders in the ripple case and i reached out to her uh office and and i said listen i got 400 of her constituents uh i don't care about ripple they can still go after ripple but they're 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 actually going after and hurting retail and when they got back to me and they found out that the two executives were sued and they're billionaires they literally told me elizabeth warren will not, the senator will not get involved and be seen as helping or defending any billionaire and i said and i tried to focus that that's not what i'm arguing i'm talking about 400 regular people who their investments have been frozen 
on high trust capital and others there's you know she's on the banking committee and they literally laughed at me and said basically go away we don't care so she will never let truth get in the way of the narrative that she wants to I mean, Dave and I have spoken about this before. Both of us have some connections on Capitol Hill, uh, certainly in the Democratic Party. There seems to be sort of an impression that she's actually running the show with anything financial. I mean, Dave, maybe you could offer more clarity on that. But we, we talk about the Biden administration, their attacks, the SEC attacks. But there's pretty cred- credible evidence that she's kind of the most powerful person uh, behind all of that. Well, I mean, look, they made a deal and, you know, the deal was she would, and you see her nominees are in a variety of places, notably at the SEC, et cetera. Uh, I've heard from at least three different lobbyists who say that she's controlling purse strings uh, vis-a-vis the DNC. Um, And, you know, I I don't know what to make of any of this stuff. Everything I know is secondhand. But the, the, the proof is in what you see. I mean, nominees who are uh, completely against digital assets. I mean, I, you know, to me, you made the point before about, you know, they should be pro it. I mean, look, I, I continually am, I'm reminded by the fact that it's almost impossible to find a human being with, with a pulse and an IQ where, you know, where you could walk and chew gum at the same time that thinks that the current analog financial market structure is going to exist in 25 years. Yet, pushing digital asset market structure out of the United States uh, when the U.S. has enjoyed decades of dominance, partially because our financial services system was the most efficient, is just so mind-bogglingly dumb, it's almost impossible to understand. So the, there has to be a reason behind it, and the reason generally is power and money. And I think that that's what it boils down to. Yeah, that that seems logical. I mean, listen, I think we could harp on Elizabeth Warren all day. If anybody else has any more thoughts on this, uh, please jump in. Otherwise, uh, honestly, I feel like puking every time we uh, talk. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, to, to be honest, I'd, I'd, I'd prefer to move on. I think Elizabeth Warren is an exception. But generally, when you're sitting there shitting on politicians, I don't I do not do it as often anymore. I don't do it in general. I don't like doing it. But now when they're being critical on crypto and they're being unfair to crypto, I just think after after everything we've done in the last couple of years and after the the, the, the shit that we saw last year with FTX and, and the rest of them, um, I, I think we deserve a lot of the criticism. So I've just been a lot less critical. Now, obviously, Elizabeth Warren's, uh, her statement is is just not something I could defend. I, I, I Usually, I intentionally play devil's advocate when needed, uh, but this one is a bit hard for me, so I'm not going to play devil's advocate. Well, then let's go positive and take the flip side of this, right? Which is you you asked a bit about Vivek. He spoke at Bitcoin 2023. RFK spoke at Bitcoin 2023. DeSantis, obviously, you hosted and had 6 million people listen to his announcement. He was asked about Bitcoin. He has a position on it. We both know where Biden and Trump stand. Not the positions we want, but they do have positions. So let's talk about Trump has, an, have, has yeah. NFTs as well, man. Don't forget. Yeah, but he, yeah. Yes, of course. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, we know he doesn't like Bitcoin unless uh, someone on his team can make money on NFTs. Right. But let's but but beyond that, let's talk about the point here that Bitcoin and crypto are now a fundamental part of the political platform of every single meaningful candidate in the United States of America. I would have never expected that to be the case in 2020. Were they mentioned? Were they ever mentioned, or, or were they were they were, were there questions about um, 
presidential candidate's position on crypto in the last uh, election or the one before? No, absolutely not that I can read. I mean, the fact that, listen, I mean, you, like I said, you were there for obviously DeSantis and I think he, uh, you know, listen, I think he was playing to the crowd, but Sachs and Musk did not have to ask him about Bitcoin at all. Right. That wasn't like it, it makes sense that RFK and Vivek are on stage at Bitcoin 2023 talking about Bitcoin and their position because they're playing to the audience that's there. I do believe they're both pro, but there was no reason in that DeSantis announcement for him running for president that that even had to be mentioned. I found that astounding. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, I think do you expect to see it to, to have crypto mentioned in the next uh, in the next uh, round of debates? I do. Eleanor, I see you have your hands up. I would love your, your thoughts here. Hey, yeah, sorry. And if you have trouble hearing me, it's because I'm in the middle of New York City, so it's kind of loud. But I just wanted to go back quickly to the point of Elizabeth Warren. Um, we also have to remember that she's very close to Gary Gensler, right? So, you know, her, um, Gary Gensler's daughter actually interned for Elizabeth Warren. So we know that they're close outside of politics. So whatever, you know, Elizabeth Warren is saying, you can bet that Gary Gensler's listening. So I just wanted to make that quick point. Yeah, I mean, she put him in power. Justin, go ahead. I think what we're seeing is quite remarkable with RFK announcing that he will be accepting lightning payments as donations. This is absolutely unprecedented. And to see that now a presidential candidate can accept donations in a cryptocurrency creates a completely new paradigm. And I think finally, when I was in the crowd listening to that speech, and obviously I know Bobby, it felt like a monumentous occasion that a candidate is finally speaking to me, speaking to my interest, speaking to how my assets matter for the world. And I think that matters for the world generally. And that, that to me is very unprecedented. Yeah, I tend to agree. So that's clearly the positive narrative that we have here surrounding these candidates. I mean, I, I would love everyone's opinion here on whether they think that this is genuine, whether they think that we're hearing those comments because of who they're speaking to. Uh, I mean, do you think that this I, I do believe that this will become a legitimate part of the next platform, but maybe that's me and my excitement inside my own echo chamber. I would love uh, some thoughts from any of you guys. Jump right in. I believe 100 percent you will see a question at the presidential debate, and I believe Bitcoin and digital assets will be asked. So I, exactly what the last guest was saying speaker was saying is is 100 percent is as much doom and gloom as we've seen in the last you know year especially with ftx uh setting it back setting us all back uh that is a monumental shift so that i i believe in and i think the democrats unfortunately picked this battle i think the brad shermans uh on the bank the financial services committee uh went this way and then you saw we got the warren davidson's and we got the Tom Emmers on the opposite side. Elizabeth Warren on the banking committee with Sherrod Brown, they chose to attack Bitcoin and attack digital assets and make this false narrative. And I think the the Republicans are just picking up on it. And then you couple that with the freedom and, and privacy issues. And, and I think the, uh, we're going to see more and more of this. I don't think this is as political issue as people think. I think that there's plenty of pro-crypto Democrats who are just now at this point quieter because they have egg on their face from SBF and FTX. And I think that there's plenty of Republicans who probably hate it. Am I wrong? I don't think that this is a partisan issue in the same way that a lot of people believe it is. I think it's just very vocal minorities on both sides that make it appear that way. By the way, can I ask you a question unrelated to this? I want to move away from politics a bit. Scott, 
Scott, can you hear me? Have at it. Have Man, it. I, I covered FTX. I covered all the drama that happened back then. But to be honest, since since we kind of moved on from this, I haven't covered it since. Um, it's been months and months and months. Can you give me a latest update on Sam? It's a selfish question. Well, apparently he's now uh, making a move to blame his lawyers to get himself off. And that's effectively where we're at. And then there was some news that, that he was effectively some of the fraud cases might conflict with his extradition from the Bahamas. So he might have some of that dropped. That John, I mean, you're the lawyer here. Have <laughs> you been looking at this at all, I would imagine? I mean, I'm not surprised uh, when you're talking about fraudulent intent, right? They They have to prove, they have to get into Sam's mind and prove that he had fraudulent intent. So uh, the last ditch straw, when you have such strong evidence, and of course, all his post FTX bankruptcy interviews killed him because there's so much that you can discern and uh, let's just say at least circumstantial evidence of intent, and then admissions of commingling and things of that, which were in direct violation of the user agreement. So when you're faced with that kind of, you know, monumental evidence, uh, what do you do? You say, hey. Uh, you, you, the genius goes to the dummy and like, I'm a lay person. I just relied on my attorneys. My attorneys, you know, told me to do it this way. And, and, you know, that's his get out of jail free card. He's trying it. It, it gets tried quite a bit and it usually fails, you know, as far as the extradition thing, there's enough charges there. I think there's 13 founding counts, but, uh, the bottom line is it's going to come down to just your basic, uh, fraud case and, you know, I'm someone who thinks that, you know, Sam's going to, you know, be facing minimum of 30 years. So good luck to him. I was about to ask, so you do think he's going to face 30 years? Because I've heard some other opinions that of people that think he's going to get off scot-free just because of the political connections and the strength of the lawyers that he has. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you're saying that you think he's going to get 30 years. Yeah, uh, it's, yeah, and, and John, that, that goes. I have the same question. I used to get arguments to people like, for me, when people say his political connections will 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 uh, allow him to walk away, I just think they're over exaggerating the corruption that exists in the U.S. Uh, judicial system. I know there's corruption there, but there's no way Sam is going to walk free. No, I mean they're they're lacking. I mean, listen, that just is a sad testament to the lack of faith that uh, people have in our, our system, both our government and our judicial system. But, you know, the yes, you can try. You, he gained access. Let's, let's just call it like it is. He was the second largest donor. He also donated to Republicans. He bought access. I mean, why, why does Brian Armstrong not get a meeting as the CEO of Coinbase, right? An American exchange in America trying to comply, yet... Sam Bateman fraud gets two meetings with Gary Gensler Two specific. That's, that's not SEC. That's just him and Gary. And so he bought access, but he also put egg on their face, as was said, and he's embarrassed them. And so they have to prove the opposite. Now they have to prove that they're tough on him. And so I think they're going to throw the book at him. You know, maybe I'll eat these words and I'll be shocked, but yes, I think that he's, he's going to be spending 30, 40 years. Well, Ross Elbrick is in jail for 4,000 years for his involvement in Silk Road. And you think that Sam Bankman fried is going to get 30? He should get 300. No, no. I'm, I'm saying that if he cuts a deal, uh, then maybe he's getting 30 to 40. But uh, I think that's fair. That's fair. Now, 30 to 40, I think is fair for what he's done. I know he's done a lot, but 30 to 40, he hasn't, he hasn't you know, gone on a, on, a, on a killing spree and massacred 20 people to spend the rest of his life in jail. 
Um, I think it's easier for us from the outside to hey, put it, put him, put him in jail for the rest of his life. You know, there's criminals that have done worse, and and okay, maybe not to the same extent numerically. Um, but you got you got to remember, there's somebody who who you're talking about people. There were several suicides. I know, I know. I I don't want to diminish. Again, it's very what I said is very controversial. Many not many people will say it, and it's like the cool, sexy, the cool, sexy thing to say. He should go to jail. He should rot in jail. He should spend the rest of his life there. Um, which is again, most people would say that. I think a few decades in jail, his life is already over. Like when you spend 30 years in jail, what he's 20 now, he comes out as 50. All right, that you know, what? What are you gonna find a wife and get married and have kids at age 50? Um, 50 whatever so i think he's his his life is pretty much you could almost say it's over when you go to jail for 30 years i mean the real interesting question for me isn't sam is is and it's not uh caroline and all them they, they've played guilty but uh is there going to be any repercussions for others i mean when you look at that scheme that he put together you know that's his father's doing his mother was involved they had the real estate in their names in the bahamas that's the more interesting question. Are they going to suffer the consequences? Are they facing any? Is it? Are they facing any charges at all? I haven't. Again, I've I've been out of the loop for a not while. That I know. Not that not that I've heard, but that's the that's the issue for me. Are there political connections? Because because his mother runs a a a, a a pack for the Democrats, and so that's the that's where the political you know get out of jail free card might might stem. But there's no way that Sam. You know, uh, parents weren't complicit. Uh, have you, uh, Scott? I'm not. Sure, you probably both. You and Rand covered this. Rand dropped out as always. He'll, he'll be back up shortly. But you guys have covered the um, the Binance uh, investigation, the CFTC investigation. What was your conclusion, guys and panelists as well? Feel free to jump in or put your hand up. But on the whole Binance fund, I know it happened a while ago, but I, you know, we never had the chance to speak about it. So it'd be good to talk about it now because we also know that Reuters just a few days ago put out a piece, which I thought was pretty uh, kind of a nothing burger about Binance hit piece. Yeah, seems that like, was yeah, it seems like it. I mean, uh, I, I've been loving uh, what's his name, Phil, uh, whatever the guy from Comms from Binance. His responses have been just completely incredible to to all of these nonsensical things. Listen, I, I can't speak to what's true, what isn't. I can only go by what we've seen, and and I think to a very large degree. And I've said this about a number of players in in the crypto space. I think that they started off in a Wild West mentality in an environment where there was zero regulation and it was either move forward or wait 100 years until the United States came around and gave some sort of clarity. And so I would imagine that there were a lot of things that happened in the past at exchange and companies in crypto that were, I wouldn't definitely not nefarious, but probably outside of the realm of what would be considered you know regulated or in line at this exact moment i mean cz himself has made the point many times i I love it i tell the story all the time when i was speaking with him he said listen it's like the automobile he's like you know first they had the the model t and it was slow and there were five of them on the road and you didn't have to worry about it but then cars got faster there were a lot more of them and the regulator came around and started to add seatbelts and speed limits and traffic laws he was like we were you know starting this exchange as the car before there was any law and now we're getting in line with all of those regulations bill i mean listen you run abra obviously uh you probably know more about this than anyone else do you think that aligns or do you think that there's actually something nefarious here that reuters piece recently was just a hit piece in my mind yeah i i i'm gonna skip commentary on the reuters piece it was just so awful um i i couldn't even get through it in one sitting uh, i got angry and then came back and then read it again and anyway um look I, I think when it comes to cftc and derivatives and 
it's not really that different from from the SEC, except the CFTC has probably less staff to do investigations. These things aren't really that complicated uh, when it when when it comes to offerings, right? I mean, either you are offering leveraged derivatives to Americans without uh, DCM, or you're not. And I think at one point they were, and then they stopped, and and so that's the end of it, right? I mean, if if they admit that they did it, which I'm guessing that they already have, uh, then in theory that's the end of it. Then the question becomes, okay, uh, their their KYC is and 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 you know geofencing is, uh, from what I understand, is pretty top notch now. And if you're not an American, you have very little chance of using Binance.com, as I understand it. Uh, unless you go buy an ID in the dark web or something like that, uh, and 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 so I, I think we're talking about past transgressions. The only other option here, and and I don't I don't want to spread fraud fraud because I've heard no specific allegations would 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 be fraud, and I I have not uh, heard anything specific that would lead me to believe that there's anything there. So so other than the very earliest days of of Binance, where everyone knows that it was just like a perpetual ship at sea. Uh, and anything went, there's really nothing there that I can see. And and everybody's had this company under a microscope for so long, you know, at some point you just have to say, okay, give the guy, give the guys a break and the gals a break. They're doing what they say they're doing and, and let's just get on with it. And yeah, okay, there's a little bit of a mea culpa for past transgressions, but honestly, that was at a point when Anything went in crypto. You know, BitMEX was was doing it, and Binance was doing it, and OKX I think was doing it, et cetera, et cetera. So, so let's just get on with it. Yeah, that's exactly my point. I mean, I I love to draw this sort of corollary to Tether, right? I mean, we saw Tether over the years become fully backed and compliant and change how they were backing. Right. I just think that in those early years, there was really no rules. People were doing wild things. I mean, BitMEX literally like had a prop desk counter trading their customers. Yeah, tell me another one that ironically, if you're a, if you're an American company or individual high net worth family office, they won't touch you with a ten foot pole uh, as a direct you know uh, counterparty for onboarding to to acquire and maintain an tether, which puts Americans at a very distinct uh, disadvantage because you know tether can depeg on 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 marketplaces, but but in theory the mints can't depeg, and and so uh, it's just yet another example of of um you know where a company that should be able to operate within the confines of the law similar to circle has effectively been been pushed out for no viable discernible reason that i can ascertain uh, at least none that makes any any sense i'm sure that, that there is a legal reason why they don't want to deal with us uh, but as an american it, it just it's infuriating and makes no no common sense to me right but all of this fud and whether true or not about finance tether both of those companies sustained five billion plus forty-eight hour bank runs without a hiccup, and we saw what happened in U.S. banks that are regulated when that happened. Yeah, I think in the earliest days, I, I do think there was validity to the lack of transparency with Tether. I think they've come a long way since then. Uh, I think, like to your point, they've survived uh, multiple kind of negative. Uh, black swans, you could almost call them. Probably not the truest form of black swan, but but pretty bad. Uh, Binance as well, but certainly Tether. I mean, um, I, I'll give them a lot of credit for not only surviving, but trying to be transparent. And, and, and no big five audit firm will touch them at this point, right? So they're kind of relegated to um, 
you know, doing disclosures that probably don't look as polished or as kind of first rate as what a public American company would be used to, even though they're managing tens and tens of billions of dollars because the traditional big five audit firms won't even take them as a client, which is very unfortunate. Yeah, especially when you see that they're doing uh, billions of dollars in in uh, you know in, in actual uh, earning on a quarterly basis now on the back of high interest rates. Yeah, they look at the rate things are going. At the rate things are going, they're basically now the Uber of money, right? Uber is a is a taxi company with with no with no taxis, and these guys are a bank with no banks. And at the rate at the at the rate they're growing, they're going to be the biggest bank in the world. And, and basically be outside of traditional you know, regulator oversight because they refuse to pull them in and give them a path to make it super easy uh, you know, to operate directly with, with Western counterparties. And I, I sincerely hope for everyone's sake that changes before, before they get much bigger. Speaking of regulators, John, Eleanor, I want to talk about Ripple, obviously, because this seems to be coming to a head. Can you guys give us an update as to when we might actually see some clarity here, a final answer, what the prognosis is, and then we'll dive into everybody thinking, you know, I guess, giving their opinion on what it could mean for the market. Take it away, John. Well, we're uh, waiting on a day from uh, Judge uh, Torres's summary judgment decision. All the paperwork is in both sides. The SEC has asked for summary judgment. Ripple has asked for summary judgment. Um, on the 13th, uh, a lot of people don't believe her decision will become come before June 13th because on June 13th, the infamous Hinman emails and SEC comments that 63 emails, 52 unique drafts of that June 14th, 2018 speech, all of that is going to be unsealed with very limited redactions. Um, she's ruled that way, which implies that and she said in her order that um she the court makes these declares these judicial documents if they impact her decision making on summary judgment and so what role those emails are going to play or not play we know that the ceo brad garlinghouse has tweeted that it will shock uh the public uh, we know that Stuart Stuart alderody the general counsel has said it was well worth the fight of uh like millions and millions of dollars in litigation so conventional wisdom at this point is that we won't see the summary judgment ruling until after the 13th of june you know which way it's going to go who knows i've said someone i've been someone who said that the sec may have snatched defeat from the jaws of victory because of the way they charged the case they could have absolutely in my opinion proven that in the early years when you know there was the ecosystem the xrp ledger was only controlled by ripple and they held all the coins that those initial distributions sort of just like an ico of east 2014 ico that that in fact uh satisfied the howey test but instead they went with this overarching theme that all uh, sales of xrp including secondary market sales uh, regardless of the seller or the circumstances surrounding the sell in other words, XRP, they said, is in, is represents a security itself. And so um, I believe that the SEC is going to lose on that. That is an absolute unconstitutional expansion of the Howey test. 
Uh, it stretches Howie beyond any recognition. And a lot of people believe that she'll split the baby and that she'll come up with some early cells that Ripple made, find them for him, uh, and then uh, argue that, you know, rule that uh, today and ongoing and secondary market sales are not. You know, we're all guessing. It's up to Judge Torres. Um, and so that's where we stand. And, and the secondary, the secondary market sales will be the key thing, right? Because that's going to be the precedent that's set as to whether other crypto tokens are or are not securities. Well, yeah, it's the whole reason I got involved is why in the library case after the SEC law uh, won, uh, the judge's order could be implied to be uh, to be all sales of LBC tokens, and in the injunction that the SEC was seeking said all persons in interest. Well, that could be every LBC holder. So that's why in the penalty phase, I went in on behalf of Naomi Brockwell and said, look, judge, fine. You, you ruled against library, not here to argue that, just like I'm not here to argue against, you know, ruling against Ripple. But it is absurd. To, uh, there hasn't been a case in 76 years since Howie where an investment contract was held to be a, a security in perpetuity. In that in every therefore, every cell thereafter, it's always around the circumstances surrounding the cell. And the judge in library, we don't know yet, but I have a transcript. I can't publish it. He promised that he would make it clear that his ruling was limited to library and direct sales and did not impact the secondary market. Now, there's some people who believe Judge Torres may leave that issue alone. And I'm I'm confident and hopeful that she won't. Because that's why I got in as amicus and said, hey, you know, they you do whatever you want against Ripple. But, you know, saying that XRP itself or that secondary market sales are securities is absurd. And, and please basically make sure that you clarify that. And the judge in Telegram, her friend, Judge Castell, you know, basically said, look, the Graham itself, even though they were written contracts, Graham initial purchase agreements. Those aren't the securities. It's the scheme surrounding the cell and the and all of those things. And so, you know, we'll see. And those so, documents. Can I ask a Can I ask a basic question? You know, very telling. I I believe because the SEC has tried for so many years to to hide the contents of them. So you know what is in them that they're trying to hide. I think you know whether it's a smoking gun, we don't know. And John, I think we we talked about this, but you know, there's definitely going to be something in there that brings light into the fact of, you know, kind of why this lawsuit was brought and, and why this industry is getting so uh, targeted. Bill, what's your question? Can I ask you guys? Yeah. So, so John, I, I've, I've watched these guys since day one. I've known Chris since pretty much day one. Um, this, this has gone on before the lawsuit for, I believe, almost seven years in terms of both primary, secondary sales, uh, usage of XRP and then the platform. There was a settlement, I believe, uh, with either Treasury or or uh, DOJ, where they had to make code changes, even I think in the earliest days. So, so which is proof uh, positive that that clearly the government was not ignorant of what Ripple and XRP was all about. How does the judge justify saying, "Okay, the SEC allowed this to go on for seven years plus before they decided to bring these charges"? I mean, that just that just makes absolutely no sense. That's a, that's. And, a Go ahead. Yeah. I'm sorry. No, ahead. and 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 why has not not been brought up and used as you know uh, some type of of defense to say, hey, look, you know, regardless of what you may think, 
how could they allow this to go on for seven years if they're so confident in their case? Anyway, and we get the point. No, it's a great it's a great question, and and I'll take the two things you brought up. What people need to understand. Uh, Chris Larson went to the SEC in 2013. The Treasury was there. Federal Reserve was there. Uh, CFTC was there. Chairman of the SEC was there. And he said, I'm introducing to you this decentralized payment system. Two years later, that's when the FinCEN settlement came down. And they said, you must apply. These are virtual currency sales. You must apply to the banking laws. The SEC was in a sharing agreement with the FinCEN. They knew then in 2015, 2014, the year before the United States Government Accountability Office lifted XRP as a virtual currency utilized in a decentralized payment payment platform called Ripple. So you're 100% right. The, the government knew of this on and on and on for years. And to your second point about seven and a half years of publicly trading, why all of a sudden you bring this lawsuit and you allege this way, that goes to their fair notice defense. And so if the judge feels the way you do and feels the way I do, which is, you know, holding the SEC accountable, you know, for for their the way that this all went down, she can rule that even if she finds that there were cells that met the Howie test, that Ripple did not have adequate notice uh, based on all that government uh you know, inaction and action uh, that didn't have fair notice and therefore they have a, a uh, they can win on that. That would be a jury trial. So the a great scenario for Ripple, other than a flat out win, which a lot of people don't think is going to happen, a great scenario for Ripple would be, hey, from 2013 to 2018 or whatever date, uh, let's say before their ODL pro platform, whatever, these meet the Howie tests. But based on everything that you just brought up, uh, it's going to be a question for the jury whether or not Ripple received fair notice under the law. Uh, and then that would go to a jury trial. That's a complete win for Ripple. Uh, at that point, I would never see the FCC going to a jury verdict where jurors are going to hear all of this conduct. Plus, the stuff that's in those emails, at a minimum, we know that XRP was discussed in those emails. At a minimum, we know that senior people at the SEC advised against giving the speech by simply saying that it's going to create more confusion. You know, why does ETH, you know, and Bitcoin only? What about the third largest? What about these other cryptos? There's going to be all of that dialogue going in there. And so the one thing I should say, I'm very confident Chris and Brad are going to win on the reckless charge because in order to prove they aided and abetted Ripple in selling illegal securities, it must meet a recklessness standard, which means it's so obvious to a layperson that XRP was a security. So if these emails and these 52 drafts going back and forth at the SEC in 2018 are, are debating it, if the experts in securities are saying, hey, XRP doesn't look like a security or it doesn't meet all the Howey tests, how could these two individuals know it back in 2013? And so the only other comment I would say is that the SEC wrote a memo. Now, it's, it's been sealed as privileged, but they wrote an XRP Howey memo on June 13th, 2018. And we don't know what it said, but we know what it didn't say. 
it was, there was no recommendation to issue a cease and desist letter to Ripple. So you can bet if the SEC enforcement lawyers said, hey, we've analyzed XRP on June 2018, it is absolutely a security, it meets the Howey test unequivocally, they would not have not done anything. Instead, they just launched an investigation, you know, that went for two and a half years. So, yeah, I, I th what's interesting to me here is that I think there was an impression at the beginning within the crypto community that it was very polarizing. There's a lot of people that actually cheered for Ripple to lose because for whatever reason, they hated Ripple. It was a polarizing company. Now, I think that to, uh, the silver lining is that seemingly everyone has galvanized and come together behind them. Also, of course, with the SEC going after Coinbase, people have, I think, are, are, are largely supporting them. But maybe the silver lining here is that the industry has had enough and they're all coming up behind this uh, to support. But b before you jump in, John, I want to say that was a great summary. Should we even care? This is the question. That was my, yeah. panel, right? that was, that was my question. Like, should we yes. even care? Because if Ripple wins and then that just goes back to the SEC and the SEC just changes the way that they come after Ripple in a separate right uh so does it even matter will it affect the industry why is this important that's what i want to hear people say. and for pro and john as well like i want to ask exactly that same question scott so, so i'm glad you asked it what does it mean for projects that are sitting listening to us now john well the first thing a great question the first thing is how many projects can afford 200 million dollars in legal fees not many and and i've always been hesitant to like defend ripple because i really don't care that much i i care about the xrp holders but let's not forget that there was a two and a half year investigation and, and they didn't allege fraud. So I know that Ripple is a very controversial company, but you can bet your ass. I'm a former federal prosecutor. If there was a way to allege, if we're going to sue them anyways, and we can allege fraud on a good faith basis, we would have. And they did. And so why should people care? Because we know Coinbase is up on deck. We know there could be a, a case against Binance coming up. This war on crypto is not ending anytime soon. And so uh, this case, as each day progresses, gets bigger and bigger. The, if, if, in fact, Ripple wins or they, the, fair, the judge accepts the fair notice defense, that helps Coinbase because Coinbase was given uh, permission to give an IPO two years ago in 2020, April of 2021. Right. They, they sub submitted an S1. They showed the SEC what their business model was. They even went to the SEC in January of 2019 about XRP and said, we're going to list XRP unless you tell us otherwise, because we want to go public, you know, and we don't want to run afoul of what you think. And the SEC didn't discourage them. So yeah, John. I, yeah, I, I agree. I think we all concur. Like uh, the history of it is suspect <laughs> at best. Right, Bruce, I saw. Sorry, I just want to jump to. Yeah, Bruce, you got your hand up. I know that you have some takes on this. Yeah, I mean, um, this is a great panel, by the way, but the uh, a couple things. What I can't believe is in this standard of, uh, you know, in the financial world and in compliance, you know, anybody who's a professional knows that you have to be accurate with your statements. I mean, that's like a thing, you, you know, so I'm a registered broker. I learned that at like, you know, age 19 or something like you, you, you know, whatever you do, never, ever, ever, ever lie, be accurate. That's what like any good compliance person, lawyer will, will tell you. And, you know, as a, as an SEC registered firm, 
we have all kinds of uh, responsibilities. Our email is monitored. Our communications are monitored. Any 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 um, FINRA member, SEC member, you know, all kinds of, uh, you know, certain advertising has to be approved. You have to have um, communications with customers approved, advertising, even my tweets, even this, me appearing on this. All of this has to be approved by some kind of supervisor. And in some cases, you have to go right to the regulators. So what's astonishing to me is that we... Everybody in our industry, whether you're SEC registered like I am and my firm is, or you're just a regular participant in this industry, you're held to this very uh, you know, high standard of truth. And then you have the regulators themselves who are not held to this standard and they can outright lie. And we have this statement that uh, John probably can give you more details on it. But like what was a couple of weeks ago where they said basically... You can't rely on these statements. So like the Hinneman speech and stuff like that, you know, it seems like the SEC is like, well, you know, oh, you know, it doesn't matter what the chair says. It doesn't matter what the commissioners say. And you can have, um, you know, just outright, you know, false statements. You know, Gary Gensler makes false statements all the time, all the time. I mean, he's like, uh, you know, some of the worst actors in our space. And if, 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 a, if a registered firm or even an unregistered firm like a Coinbase had even a junior employee, I mean, if you had a, an intern who went on a crypto account and made a material false statement, they'd be in big trouble. And if a registered firm like us did, it doesn't matter. There's no excuse we'd have. It, it doesn't matter if the employee is not registered or whatever. So it's just, it, to me, it's just astonishing. I don't know if, the, I, you know, hopefully the judges will look at this, you know, kind of thing. But I'm just astonished that we can have, you know, this double standard where, you know, regulators are basically just, allowed to lie and and nobody's there to you know hold them to the fire on it you know so it, bruce it's, it's, here's my here's my next question okay brian sorry no, yeah, so, yeah so no, I, mean, I want to tell you something i want to just maybe uh voice something you, you you may know that i moved to the united states i was living in south africa i moved to the united states one of the reasons i moved from south africa to the united states is because there's a lot of corruption in south africa there's a ton of corruption it's an african country with a ton of corruption and i just felt like there was no point in being in a country that was getting pillaged by the leaders. Um, and it, you, you're kind of fighting against the tide. And then I moved to the U.S. and I spent two and a half, maybe close to three years in the U.S., something, something along those lines. And what I realized when, you, when I got to the U.S. That, is that there is much more corruption. It's just done at a much, 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 much higher level. Like, I, I just couldn't believe the level at which this this corruption and uh, and politics was taking place. It, it, it made it made Africa look like a, like like Africa was was a very uh, uh, let's call it an uncorrupt. So that the corruption wasn't as sophisticated. And I will just give you like like one example which I keep using, which for me is like a, a, a really like um like a, like a really good example. Gary Gensler wrote and lectured an MIT course on blockchain. And it wasn't an MIT course on Bitcoin. It was an MIT course on blockchain. I've listened to it. I've listened to whatever's available on YouTube. I listened to it before Gensler even became uh, became this critical against crypto. Now, you cannot tell me that the same person that spent time creating this course and lectured this course with such passion and enthusiasm is a person that is now so much against crypto. What it shows is that there is corruption in the background, that there is political alignment, that here he is being used as the puppet to whoever the puppet master is, and I don't know who the puppet masters are in this case, to 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 not actually do what he thinks is right, 
but to do what the politicians, lobbyists, money, I don't know, I don't know who it is because the corruption is so sophisticated uh, in the US. You know, at least in Africa, you know, if the president's stealing, you know, because he's got private jets and Ferraris and he's, he's got 25 wives and the 25 wives all have new car, new houses. In the US, it's just so sophisticated that you actually don't know. The, no, but, but, the, right, but I mean, right, I don't, I don't, I don't, look, I think this is unfair. Like, I, I, I criticize the US all the time in my spaces, okay? Uh, but that is giving you some numbers, and you know better than I, but giving you some numbers. The US is ranked 25th out of 180 countries with a score of 67 out of 100. So that's in terms of a corruption score. South Africa is at 69th, and I don't want to, you know, degrade South Africa. I don't mean that. So, so don't don't get angry at me. But it's a score of forty four out of hundred. So my point my point is right. My point: the system is corrupt, and and many examples of this. But when you talk about the the the, the corruption in the U.S. being sophisticated, does isn't that a good thing? I'll tell you why. Doesn't that mean that the system in the U.S. is so complex that the only way they can get away with corruption on a smaller scale? Then countries like South Africa, which are significantly smaller countries, smaller economies, making it uh, making corruption less prevalent than the U.S., which is the world's biggest economy. Um, but the sophistication is a response to how uh, how how advanced and how mature the system is in the U.S. So while we can be critical, I think it's fair. And and I, I got in a, an argument with a few notable people whenever they compare the U.S. to a third world country. That was, I'm I'm just quoting exactly what they say. Um, do you agree with what I just said, or, or you still disagree? I mean, I mean, I agree with you. I think, it, I think, uh, as I say, I think this, it's it's just about the level of sophistication of, of the corruption, you know. And I think the depth of the corruption. I think that I think corruption exists in all in all countries. I think I, I say all pretty loosely. Uh, I think all governments. And I think it's just you know I, I was quite disappointed because I think when I went to the US, I actually thought it would be different. Uh, and, and what I realize is that it's actually, it's exactly the It's exactly the sanctions. So maybe Brian, I can give you a perspective uh, on how Brian, we... Bill, Bill, before, Bill yeah. before you jump in, sorry, I don't want to be rude, because I know Brian was trying to speak before Rand jumped in. Oh, and Brian, sorry, like, sorry. Uh, if you get, uh, Brian, uh, I'm not, I know you wanted to comment on something else, but if you can stick to this point, because, um, you know, I don't I don't tend to disagree a lot with Rand, and I, I'm a bit happy when I can finally disagree with him on something. I want to get your stance on this, because we <laughs> talk about corruption in the US, but a counter-argument is like, hey, the U.S. laws are too strict. The requirements are too strict. It's difficult to operate in the U.S. with all the loopholes you have to jump through, um, which is kind of they're there to prevent corruption, to prevent fraud, etc. Um, and then some people. So the argument, the old argument was, and and in some in some cases still is, is that the U.S. is so strict on crypto and other spaces. Let's just talk about crypto for now. So strict that people are moving out of the U.S. But then a counter argument is that investors are more comfortable. Investing in, in uh, investing in U.S.-based companies rather than companies based abroad. So then, doesn't that doesn't that make two points? U.S. corruption is not as bad as people make it out to be. Doesn't mean it doesn't exist. And I know I'll get hate for this. I'm saying things that people don't like to hear because I'm not running for president. So I'm just stating my opinion as is. And number two, is that a good thing for the U.S.? Because just makes it just makes it more lucrative for investors and large flows of capital, especially post crazy hypes and bull runs. To me, there's two points. There's if, if if this was another country, right? I think what would the headlines would be, huh? Why is this country going so aggressive against crypto? It seems kind of like a conspiracy. I think that's objectively how it would look. We just kind of U.S. We think that they're you know a lot of people just assume they're doing the right thing. Now, when it comes to institutional level, and maybe let's talk about centralized crypto, right? I think there's some argument there that 
some regulation would actually be positive because it'd bring in more money. You know, Coinbase stated publicly that they tried to go into the SEC and register, but they said they couldn't. Um, so to me, that's that's a problem because um, if they could, if there was a way to do it without just getting sued in response or whatever is happening, um, then more money would be comfortable coming into the markets. But obviously, the regulator doesn't seem to want that to happen. So it seems like to me, there's inherently a problem. Um, I, I do think that some regulation would be good um, on the centralized, you know, because then maybe another FTX doesn't happen, even though that was an offshore problem. Um, but I could see an argument there of why that would make sense. But I think that the bigger problem is why is it seems so conspiracy-ish on the on the general crypto side of that there's just so much resistance, you know. But Brian, Brian, like is that like, like yeah, but Brian, 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 you know, considering what happened in the la- in the last sixteen months, do you blame them for the crackdown that we're seeing? Like it's it's they need to do this first as a, as an immediate response so they save face number one because they failed in terms of regulation and number two is to, you know voters are not too happy people lost a fuck ton of money so they they're kind of forced to respond in that way because what happens is that we we ruined you know we caused so much shit like more than any of us expected all of us expected the market to correct all of us saw how frothy it is none of us saw what we what happened with FTX. So we've caused so much shit. And then when the, the regulators respond in the way they did, and by the way, it could still, you know, it's the conspiracy behind it that this is a direct uh, attack on crypto and that bill, the the Restrict Act being targeted to crypto, etc. Like, they, they make sense. I'm not saying it's not true. But uh, but what about the other the other, the other other the other way of looking at it is that we're getting what we deserve. And, and Bruce will probably hate me for what I'm saying here because I know Bruce's take. He's been on the stage a few times. And Bruce, feel free to completely shit on me. I don't mind. Um, and Scott, maybe give 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 Bruce a question where it gives him the opportunity to chat. Yeah, yeah, I'm ready. Here, here, Bruce, here, here's the question that I wanted to ask that I put in the private chat, and I know you have a passion about it, but with all of this said, should we abolish the SEC? Yes. The, see, the thing is, what Brian said is that, that you know, maybe we can prevent another FTX. And what, what Mario said is basically like, you know, we, we, we've got to do this or the regulators have to do this to save face. But But both of those statements are based on the premise that this would work. It doesn't work. The, 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 the mistake that people make in evaluating regulation, they say, well, it's really hard and it hurts business and it costs a lot of money and it drains productivity and it stops startups from growing and it stops flowers from booming, but at least it stops the fraud. But that's not the real trade-off. It does all of those horrible things, but it doesn't stop the fraud. It doesn't stop the fraud. In fact, it encourages the fraud because the more stupid regulations you have from, you know, nitwit, care and status sitting in fancy offices that they paid for with the money they stole from us, the more that you have uh, people trying to weasel their way through with loopholes. Can, can, can I ask you a question? Sorry to interrupt, but it's a question on, on something you said. When you say the SEC doesn't stop fraud, now I can list a whole list of frauds that were, you know, where, where the SEC took action and brought them down. But more importantly, how many times do you hear people saying, hey man, Scott, hold on. Scott, we've had this discussion where we talk about different things like, yeah, Mario, but I need to be careful because of the SEC. And I've had anyone I talk to in the US, yeah, but I can't do this. Or I need to be careful. I need to think two, three times, talk to a couple of lawyers because of the SEC. So people are scared of the SEC. But people, people, worried, people worried about Stalin too. It doesn't mean that he was doing a good thing. People worried about, oh no, I better not say this bad thing about Stalin. I better not trade my food certificates with the other person's food certificates because then I'll have too much toilet paper and the party will come and send the Gestapo into my house and kill me. You know, that doesn't mean it's good. Just because people are worried about the Gestapo doesn't mean it's good. You know, the, 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 you know the, the, the regime that we have, yeah, sure, people are worried about it, but it doesn't prevent fraud. Their best pal, 
Sam Bankman-Fried had unprecedented, unfettered access. He had more access than anybody. He helped them write their legislation. And this goes back for decades. The biggest fraudster in history is not Sam. It's uh, Bernie Madoff. And Bernie Madoff was head of the largest regulator. He was head of the largest regulator. They, so regulations don't work. All of these apparatus, all they do is hurt the honest people. They allow the Sam Bankman-Frieds and the Bernie Madoffs to weasel their way through and commit even more fraud. And it gives people a false sense of security that they think like, oh, well, I guess the government's saving me. The SEC is out to help me. They're not. They're out to help their cronies. And they hurt people. They hurt all the honest people. And they don't do anything. So when you say the SEC, you know, has stopped some fraud, but but net net has it stopped fraud? Absolutely not. The whole ICO wave came about because it's so difficult to do anything in the U.S. So people looked at you know ways to say like, Okay, how can we not be a security here or all of these other things? But, you know, ultimately the stuff just doesn't work. Okay, okay. So let me let Bill, me just no, 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 hold on. Before you jump in, people, I've got a good response. I know there's a lot of hands up, but I've got a good response, Scott, and I don't I don't have that I don't have good responses often. So when I do, I use them. Scott, you mentioned yesterday, let me see if I got the numbers. Um, all right. Share of total crypto market. These numbers are, are weird. What's the here list of top ten countries with the most crypto users? Oh wow. Okay. Uh, what was the share of the U.S., uh, Scott? You did it. You said yesterday of the total crypto market. Do you know the number, Scott? You mentioned it yesterday. I, I'm not. I'm. I'm not sure. I know the numbers. I know the. Okay. Okay. What's the? Okay, give me. Give me a number for the U.S. because it makes my point. If you remember, uh, roughly we ran. Uh, about fifteen percent. No. Okay. So let's go. Let's go fifteen percent. Even if it's ten percent. I'm going to go through this. That's the source here is chain analysis. I want to mention my sources to be careful, but chain analysis. Um, no, that's not it. Where is it? Uh, yeah, chain analysis. Cri percentage of crypto frauds per country. So total crypto fraud split per country. North Korea, unsurprisingly, is number one at 10% of total crypto frauds were from North Korea. Again, that's chain analysis. Number two is the US. At z uh, no, number two is uh, Nigeria at 2.1%. Number three is Vietnam at 1.9%. Um, India at 1.5%. Indonesia at 1.1%. Thailand at 1%. The US is sitting at so Russia 0.09, US is 0.01. The US has the big one of the biggest shares in the market. I think China is above the US, isn't it, Rand? Rand? Not China. No, 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 not China. They classify we classified as Asia. China is very, very, very small. Despite the bank, okay. Asia as a whole, it's about. Okay, so the US as a country, would you say the US is number one in terms of total uh, percentage share of the the, the crypto market? It's going be Korea or Japan. Oh, let's put it in the top three. Top three or top five. It's not even in the top 10 of total percentage of crypto fraud. So it, it kind of goes back to the point and, and, and you've got, got a great panel here that could disagree with me as well. But Bruce, this is the point what I'm saying is that, again, there's a lot of flaws in the SEC. Maybe the world will be a better place without the SEC, but it's it, there needs to be some other alternative because, uh, you know, I'm giving anecdotal experiences where people are like, I can't do this, I can't do that, I have to be careful. And whenever they want to, you know, there's that, that the founder of a bunch of meme coins. What they do is they leave the US or they launch the meme coin, they leave the US, they come to places like Dubai and stuff, which are still strict, but not as strict as the US, which I think is a vote of confidence. And, and you see VCs are more comfortable investing in, v, in, in US based companies, we're the same. So this is where I'm trying to make a counter argument, Bruce. Maybe I'll let you quickly respond before going to the rest of the, the panel, Scott. Yeah, I think that it's, uh, you know, the, the, the success of the U.S. is in spite of this. We used to be a free country. We used to let people in. We used to embrace economic uh, 
you know, freedom and opportunity. We let people start businesses. And, and that's been degraded, you know, as we've marched, uh, you know, towards communism and socialism over the last several decades, and especially this, you know, most recent administration. So it's it's kind of like in spite of it. I mean, we're a great country. We have the potential to be a great country. And in our in our blood and in our bones is freedom. But we're not living it now. You know, the, the Statue of Liberty is, is just a symbol now. We don't let people in. We don't allow people to do businesses. It's much more like a, a, you know, a third world kind of country where it's sort of who you know and what favors and how you navigate through this, uh, you know, complex mess of, of uh, you know, statist regulations. So I think it's, you know, I think any success the U.S. has is, is based on, you know, its past as, as a previously very free country uh, that embraced these kind of things. But I just don't see any argument how these uh, tyrants, you know, the Elizabeth Warren crowd helps us in any way. I and mean, Gensler and, and Warren. They don't help. They're a net. They're a net negative, in my opinion. Go ahead, Bill. You were up. Uh, you were waiting. Yeah, sure. So, so uh, look, I, I think I understand historically why this problem has evolved the way it has. Right. If you think about the history of the United States, I think one of the things that historically made the United States so great, and and jokingly is 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 relative to all the freedoms that Bruce claims we used to have is is that the checks and balances in our executive legislative and judicial branches actually work right under normal circumstances elizabeth warren going off the deep end and making shit up actually doesn't really sure shouldn't really matter right the problem we have now is is that we have regulatory agencies that over the past 50 years and i'm not just talking about financial services right and financial services obviously we have the sec we have the CFPB now and the CFTC and the list goes on and on. We have the FDA. We have the FTC. These are all unelected, non-political actors who answer effectively to no one. And, you know, and, and there's been voluminous, you know, work done, for example, on how the CFPB in financial services has literally no oversight, runs more or less any way they want finds banks with with basically no checks and balances and no recourse right and and that is the crux of the power base problem in the united states because that gives elizabeth warren a power base that she otherwise wouldn't have in other words she can put gary gensler in her back pocket even though there's actually very good decent people in the trenches at these agencies but the political appointees end up in the back pocket of politicians and do their bidding in a way that throws a hundred years of checks and balances out the window. And that's what we need to figure out as a society how to... Can anyone back me? Ryan, can you back me up? Like, I'm, I'm, am I the only optimistic one about the US? Uh, you know, if, if you look at various sources, for example, and I want to go, I want to focus on crypto, but if you look at uh, the US for is, is rated number one for entrepreneurship and building businesses based on various sources... I. I'd love to comment on that. Uh, yeah, sure. I'll go to Ryan and then Justin. Go ahead, Ryan. Yeah, uh, thanks for having me, guys. And and I, I wanted to make sure I got at least one comment in uh, here before I rejoin in, in a little while. Um, you know, I think um, I think Bill's right. W one thing that I would note. So I'm I'm bullish on the U.S. Uh, obviously, I'm an American, and one of the things that I'm spending a lot of time on, as, as many others on this call, is fighting for sensible pro crypto policy. And even if the numbers are only 10, 15% in terms of users, and um, it, it, we're, we still have an outsized influence on the capital markets, we still have an outsized influence just in terms of raw uh, capital and, and uh, the percentage of holdings that Americans have. 
and I think from a rule of law standpoint, you know, we have the constitution on our side in a way that other countries, even those uh, like Europe, which is a little bit more forward thinking from a regulatory side, um, just do not. So I, I still think that um, there's plenty of reasons to be super bullish on crypto in the U.S. if we can educate policymakers and, and have these hard conversations with them and as an industry to figure out what is common sense regulation and what should we be advocating for aside from leave us alone. Um, the point about the SEC is is a good one, and I agree with Bill and in, in, in terms of how we've got here, but the SEC is fine as an agency if it would just abide by its stated mission, right? The stated mission and the mandate of the SEC is to promote capital formation, protect investors, and ensure that markets are fair and efficient. No one is arguing that that should not be a priority for crypto and for every crypto marketplace, for every crypto custodian, for every innovator, for every community that's issuing an asset. You want some proper checks and balances, you want disclosures, you want fair governance, and you want security and safety. Um, and the problem with this conversation and the reason it goes in circles so many times is the U.S. institutions and the good actors have been handicapped by this lack of clarity and this lack of policy in the U.S. And instead, it has pushed everything offshore, but in the most counterproductive way. It's not that innovation is fleeing America. A lot of the entrepreneurs are still here. A lot of the core builders are still here. Innovation is not fleeing America yet. That could change at some point if things get too hostile. But the good innovators have been handcuffed and they've had to see their market shares erode or they've had to see kind of competitors emerge overseas that have taken shortcuts. And it's because there hasn't been any sensible framework that would allow U.S. companies and even European companies, I guess, to, to the developed West to provide safe, sound, secure, regulated services without crippling the underlying tech. So um, I think that's the that's the battle that we have. Um, and uh, and it's it's going to be, I think, a, a long haul battle. But the, the next 18 months is pretty formative in terms of just changing the narrative and, and making sure that we get back on track uh, from a sentiment standpoint, because the sentiment goes, so goes policy, unfortunately, in the U.S. Well, Ryan, I'm looking forward to your run for Senate, right? Uh, after I've exited <laughs> Masari and we've solved this problem and run a successful campaign for crypto, you know, then I will, uh, then I'll, I, I, I talked to Bruce too much. So I know I say Bruce already did it. Yeah. It's I know how little, I, know how little I want to run for Senate. Um, <laughs> I'll, I'll be back online in, in, uh, in a little bit guys, but, um, Perfect. yeah, thanks for letting me speak. Perfect. Justin, then Joe, please. Just my comment is a bit of a disagreement to Bruce. Um, you know, I'm a first generation American. Uh, my parents fled Iran in the revolution. And within one generation, I was able to sell my first business at 27. I'm working on my second one, built generational wealth for my family that was not possible. I don't think anywhere else in the world. So to comment that America is losing its freedoms and losing its lack of entrepreneurship, I think it's completely wrong because I'm the I'm the epitome of a case study that counteracts your argument, Bruce. So, I mean, there might be a little bit of, I don't know where your lineage is from. I don't know if you're a first generation American, but for me as a first generation entrepreneur, for my parents coming from Iran, to be able to build what I built is only available in this country. And I, and I just say that from personal experience. But they couldn't come now. I mean, I agree with you. We, we've been great, but but they they couldn't come now. We won't let Iranians come here now. We don't let anybody come here now. You know, we we've done a lot. And, and you know, not, I don't want to say that it's all like the whole thing is lost. I'm optimistic about America, like Ryan is. I'm American. My business is here. As crazy and stupid as as it is, maybe I'm a 
masochist, but I've been trying to bang my head against the wall for five years now, trying to do a compliant business, you know, registered with the SEC in the crypto space, trying to do, you know, as Gary Gensler says, come on in and register. You know, I did that half a decade ago, <laughs> you know. Um, so I'm still optimistic in the U.S. I, 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 I'm looking at, you know, GCC and others as a as like a backup. You know, so I'm not totally pessimistic on the on the on the U.S., but I think most of what's great and I still think we're great. You know, we're still one of the greatest countries, if not the greatest country in the world. But I think a lot of what made us great was from, you know, probably when you came over in the 80s or whatever, um, you know, and and before that, you know, going back to, you know, 50s, 60s, um, you know, when we were much more entrepreneurial. So, I, you know, I think that, yeah, we're still great. And I think that but I, I don't know if your story would, would work right now. I don't know if people can come in right now. But, but, and but where's better? Where's better? So you have this argument saying that we're but where is better now? Yeah, that's a good you know, that's a good point. I think that in some areas, there's some places that are better and they're on kind of the upswing. Um, you know, the trend is in the wrong or at least has been in the wrong direction in the U.S. You know, that's why I say we still may be the greatest country in in the world, despite the the the, the problems. But and it depends what what for. If you're looking at a crypto business, we're not the best place in the world. If you're looking at open immigration, we're not the best place in the world. You know, there's things that you just can't do anymore. And and I think that you'll see that places like UAE, which also isn't perfect. You know, they have um, you know they have their own set of issues. But as far as you know, for the kind of like what we used to call the American dream, you know, you have people from Iran or or from you know, um, you know, poor countries or something like that. They, you know, like certain countries, there's just no way they can get in here. Even second world countries, forget about third world countries, but even like Thailand or something, you can't, it's, it's almost impossible. Everybody I know or everybody I meet when I travel, especially poorer people, uh, around the world, they would love to come here. You know, it's like a joke. Um, uh, you know, I'll, I'll say to a driver or something like, Oh, have you, have you been to America? It's like, Oh no, no, no. I really wish I could. They all want to come here, but they, you know, it's 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 hard now. And then for the, you know, the upper end richer people, um, it's a different issue. You know, they're going to places like Dubai because it's easier to do a business, you know, do business and not have the hassles that we have. So, yeah, I mean, I, I still love America, but I, I think we've gone in the wrong direction for a while. Dave, you want to jump in? Yeah, I think that, that it's it's important to understand what's actually going on and bring it back down to the digital asset and crypto world. The fact is we have a market difference today versus what we had under Clinton, same party, by the way, uh, in the 90s. And then after the aftermath of the internet bubble uh, to the aftermath of FTX on last year's issues. And it, it's really important to understand those differences. So look, we the internet was a new technology and both parties realized it made sense to take a, a, a light touch regulatory approach to it to allow uh, entrepreneurs to, to do and grow. We then had a bubble in internet companies in the United States that was far larger than anything we've ever seen in crypto in terms of market cap, import, you know, et cetera, to society, dentists, taxi drivers, everybody got, you know, lost tons of money by day trading internet stocks. And in the aftermath, what did they do? Nothing. They, they when I say nothing, I don't mean nothing horrible. They didn't stop. They didn't put on the regulations that basically forced Google, Facebook, and the next generation of internet companies to move offshore. Yet that is exactly what the current administration is doing in the aftermath of issues in crypto. So that's a that's point number one. 
Dave, can I just add to that point? Is all the fraud that was conducted through the internet, and they did nothing to stop that either. That's right. And it's the same fraud. Anyone who remembers, I'm old enough to remember, Tokyo Joe. Look out, B-Row, people. I mean, it's literally the same thing as you see it on Telegram. So it was in chat rooms like Silicon Investor and Yahoo Chat. But same, same thing. Look, the reality is bad people will do bad things. Now, where I disagree uh, with Bruce is there are that there is value to principles-based regulation. It's just that we just tend not to do it very well. But there is value. Forcing disclosures in the 30s and 40s made a lot of sense. Unfortunately, the SEC disclosure rules haven't changed since the 30s and the 40s. And these silly things called computers that have come along since then. Uh, social media has come along since then. The fact is our disclosure rules that the SEC has are are, are 100% useless. I don't know one human being who's read prospectus except for the lawyers who prepare them. Not to mention the fact that when Gensler talks about, well, the rules will work, it's like the rules for disclosures for issuers assume equity or debt. They don't assume utility tokens, and it assumes corporate structures. It doesn't assume DAOs. So the reality is you can't even fill out those forms. So there, there are a massive need for modernizing the actual rules. But the principle of disclosures, I mean, Scott, you know, if, if, if Steve it. Yeah, yeah, I was just going to say, yeah, I was literally, let me, let me, I'll just say it. I'll just say it. I just said to you, I, I was going to say, I mean, the point here is disclosures and transparency is what they're in charge of. If the SEC was actually good at their mandate, then Voyager and Celsius and BlockFi, these things, even if they had happened, people would have been able to react in advance. If Steve Ehrlich, as I've said a thousand times, had said, hey, uh, everybody, I'm giving Three Hours Capital $700 million uncollateralized because I can't find yield elsewhere and I need to give yield to my customers. Just want you guys to know that. I would have pulled my money out so fast that they would but have Scott, like. But Scott, hold on a second. I, I know, you, Scott, I, I know you're blaming this on the SEC, but hold on a second. Maybe this is not the SEC. I know it's popular. The popular view is to go against the SEC. But the SEC is working under a set of rules and a set of findings that they have. And, not true. Not true. I mean, isn't Hester it the regulators that should no, put regulation no, in place? It's not a monolith. Hester Peirce in 2018 put out a proposal and unfortunately Jay Clayton didn't want to, you know, it was, and, and he has since realized he was wrong, by the way, put out a proposal to create a safe harbor to work with the industry to create rules that work. And she has been constantly saying it ever since. And then that's a proposal. That's a proposal. But it's, but I mean, it's, with respect, problem is it's become politicized. That's the issue. What is it? Dave? Everything is part of the lawmakers. Isn't isn't it, isn't the problem with the lawmakers that we don't have the right laws in place for the new asset class? Is it, that, I'm, is just, fair. I'm playing that, that is a fair that is a fair assessment because when if we're gonna be honest, when everything looks like a nail, you know, when when the only tool you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. That's the position that the SEC is to some degree in, or at least the tack taken by Gary Gensler because he doesn't have clear legislation. But that said, to say as Gensler continually does that he's protecting people and protecting the industry and doing these things for protection after the fact, when the disclosures required were not there in the first place, that is a different conversation. So, so Scott, let me put on the second thing. So we talked about disclosure. The second, arguably the first rule that the SEC should care about is investor protection and being able to ring fix client assets. And not only does Gensler not care about that, sadly, but the fact is the SEC is ahead of you 
in or ahead not ahead of you ahead of investors in multiple bankruptcies right now and, which is literally insane nobody would vote for that but that and the IRS is stepping ahead of creditors unsecured creditors in the FTX for more than the entire case right so you're we're looking at a world where we need legislation I'm, I'm absolutely right Rand, 100 percent but the legislation needs to be able to do principle-based things. It needs to be able to allow companies to protect client assets in a way that doesn't require you to meet some definition of transfer agent and custodian that was built in the 40s, right? You know, you need disclosures that apply to you know the industry. You need fiduciary roles defined, not the way the New York Attorney General is doing it by using the old way, but basically saying, okay, who is responsible for what? You know, do I have a duty for best execution if I have a customer order? Do I have a duty to understand customer suitability if I have someone who is a retiree in, in their account, if they're giving me their discretion? Very basic stuff. Marketing. Can I make claims that guarantee returns? These are all basic things. So, so Dave, what's your what's your complaint? I just want to really understand what's your concern, not complaint. Like, is it the lack of clarity from the SEC? Is it that you know the, the, their inability the to crack down on 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 fraud and 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 the fraud still being prevalent? No, no. The complaint the complaint is that there are basic principles of regulation that we most people agree with. Ryan would he's not here anymore would would agree with this as well. The fact is, the SEC needs new rules, not not necessarily laws for them. The CFTC would follow. Yes, we can give them whatever, but instead they have focused on technical violations. In fact, the vast majority of the cases that they have brought have had no allegation of investor harm. And the ones which they which have had investor harm, they haven't been able to bring cases except, you know, going after Do Kwan when he's in Montenegro or wherever the hell he was beforehand. Uh, knowing that he wouldn't be able to defend himself. I mean, pretty much everything the SEC has done has been more based on jurisdiction than protecting investors. DeFi is a great example. What are the rules and and what is the threat? Everyone's moving offshore for a reason. You know, it, it's like there there are many many things that clarity would be helpful for. And the disingenuous tripe that where that people say, oh yeah, well we have clear rules. It's like yeah. You know, so like the, I'll bring up Prometheum and, and Bosonic both claim, oh, yeah, you don't, Gensler's right. They actually said this in a podcast with Laura Shin and Unch yesterday. It was unlistenable because it's wrong. I mean, they're, they're basically not allowed to trade Bitcoin on their platform. They're not allowed to be multi currency. They're not allowed to support on demand settlement. They're not allowed to do pretty much everything that makes digital assets digital, yet they can trade things that are called digital securities that have no volume. And that, that's kind of the, the thing. The point is that a, a clear, crisp approach that works with the industry could work. It absolutely could work. And that's what they're trying to do in Europe with MICA. And the U.S. is at absolute risk of pretty much every rational entrepreneur, if not moving completely overseas, moving a lot of jobs overseas. That's the, that's the issue. Uh, what about last question, Dave? And, and I think we should wrap up soon, Joe. Or John, give you final words. But Dave, uh, what about you know? I've heard that argument made by by a lot of investors is that um, money flows into the U.S. because of of the strict regulation, especially in industries like crypto that are uh, very high risk. Do you think? Well, there's there's two points that yeah, there's two points I want to make on that. First, there's an absolute truth. Accounting standards, for example. You, know, you want to know what your companies are doing and notifications. And so those are better. In traditional finance, you want to understand accounting and it flows in. The problem that we have with crypto in the U.S. is we don't have standards. And, and that's why a lot of people in the industry want them. 
I mean, read everything Brian Armstrong talks about when he talks about what Coinbase is trying to do. And I find myself nodding and agreeing with most of it. It's because of that. So yes, in traditional finance out there, we have the number one financial system in the world, and it has helped create trillions of dollars of US GDP as a result because of everything you're saying. That's in the analog world. In the digital world, we are well behind. And if the digital world becomes dominant, that's where it's going to lose. And as a patriotic American, I don't want that to happen. So that's thing number one. Thing number two, there's also a selection bias here. The banks that are regulated cannot flow money into the US now or cannot flow money into crypto now either way because of the regulatory uncertainty. So we're kind of putting a hold on the industry from the big banks. That's why more you know smaller firms are there. And to be honest, you know, I, I had this conversation with uh, the head of FINRA, you know, years ago, uh, you know, and, and I basically said, don't you want broker dealers to be able to offer crypto services? Because at least they understand, know your customer, they understand customer suitability, they understand best execution, they understand fiduciary responsibilities. And his answer was yes. And I said, so why are you blocking them? And, and he, he couldn't answer me. I mean, I like Robert, he's a nice guy. But the fact is, it's because the SEC has told him to block that. And, and that's the issue. You know, it could be much, much better very, very quickly. All right. So, I'll, Joe, I, John, I'll give you a final quick word as we wrap up. Uh, just a reminder for the audience, I probably should have mentioned it throughout the show. I'm an idiot. Um, so, number one, um, we do the show daily. We're not sure on whose account to do it yet, how to rotate it. We're figuring this out between us three, Scott, myself, and Ran. The second thing, if you do have a crypto project, we incubate, we work with crypto projects. We're from, from market making, tokenomics, token structure. We're partnered with TDFi. Uh, community building. You can also come on the show here. We're going to start doing pitch tank, uh, you know, shark tank like pitches as we've done on the other shows before. I couldn't Scott and Rand to do it, but expect it to be pretty, pretty aggressive. Scott is not nice when it comes to pitches, um, but you, you'll be able we'll be starting to do those here on the show. Um, but yeah, hit us up. Um, I'm not sure if Rand and Scott, you've got a system, but if you hit me up, my team will respond um, whether you want to work with us or you want to come on the show. Um, second thing is, yeah, that's pretty much it. That's the only thing, actually. Um, we'll give the mic to John and Joe. Our final quick comments, guys. Uh, we do want to wrap it up, and then the the boys will, will uh, kind of wrap the show, and we'll see you again tomorrow. Go ahead, John and, and uh, Joe. Yeah, I think uh, I'll make it. I'll be brief. Uh, I'll answer Mario's question, uh, which was, can we blame the SEC? Absolutely. John, John, okay, let, okay, John, John, let me make it harder for you. Sorry. Uh, if you want to answer the question, let me make it harder for you. The SEC, so I'm going to uh, quote uh, Jay Clayton. He said this a few years ago, not too long. The SEC is severely understaffed. We have fewer sta staff than we did in 2008, even though the markets have grown significantly since then. Quote number two by Andrew, uh, by Andrews, former director of enforcement at the SEC. The SEC's budget is inadequate. We need more resources to do our job effectively. Last one, I'll read one more. Let me read one more. The SEC is understaffing, and un that was last year. That was by an SEC report. The SEC's understaffing and underfunding have serious consequences for our ability to protect investors. Again, I don't want to seem like a, uh, I don't want to say they're protecting the, S the, the SEC, but since everyone's attacking them, pointing out the flaws, and many of them are valid, I do want to give a different perspective. John? No, you're doing a great job as host by posing it, but all right, look at the, quest, the quotes you just made. Now, let's look at the resources and where the resources are being spent. Then you triage that shit. You got 20,000 tokens. If you focused on the pump and dumps and the fraud that's going on in this industry, the people on this phone call would be cheering. Instead, you're going after non-fraud participants 
Forget Ripple because they're controversial. They're hated. I focus people on library. In the library case, how many people were out there speculating on the LBC token? I will talk to Anthony Scaramucci's uh, crypto day trader. He had never heard of LBC, and that's what he does for a living. And in that case, the SEC lawyers agreed. They agreed that there were thousands and thousands of LBC holders utilizing the platform, like Naomi Brockwell, who never bought or sold one LBC token. They agreed that she does not have an investment contract. She never made an investment, doesn't meet Howie's first prong. Yet they refuse to give any clarity and they focus on the not. You do videos with Kim Kardashian about Kim Kardashian. You're meeting with Sam Bateman free because he donated money. So yes, they are limited. Yes, there are good people at the SEC who are staff people, but the leadership is corrupt and Gary Gensler is a bad faith negotiator. Look at your resources. If, if Mario, if you looked at how much manpower is being spent on the library case, the dragon chain case, the ripple case, all non-fraud cases, and then look at the fraud cases where it's being spent, you would have your glaring answer. Yeah, I think that there's a pretty important differentiation here, though, or at least something to consider, which is, is it the SEC or is it this SEC? Oh, great. It's a great point. And I think until, listen, one thing that we have to do in this country is we have to end the revolving door, not just at the SEC, at the FDA, all of them. You can't go and be a regulator, uh, regulating the industry, and then immediately you're going to companies that you were just regulating. All right, that we have to end that because the public has no faith, none in the SEC. And there's plenty to blame, blame on the Democrats uh, nominee and blame on the Republican nominee. I put a lot of blame on Jay Clayton because it made no sense not to do what was brought up with that with that safe harbor provision. No sense. And instead, he goes and becomes an advisor at One River, which made a one billion bet on Bitcoin and ETH. Right. So let's let's call it like it is. We got to end the nonsense and hold these regulators up, up accountable and not give them a pass just because, oh, well, you know, we're applying 1930s law. You can apply the law we have today in a way more efficient way that that satisfies your mission. Just to tie it back to the beginning of the conversation, that's probably the one thing we can all agree with Elizabeth Warren on, which is to stop that revolving door between Washington and the private sector. A hundred percent, Joe. Go ahead. Yeah, I, you know, I I don't like the SEC. I think the SEC, if it was, if it did what it was supposed to do, which is protect people, it's quite simple. They would launch the Bitcoin ETF. You wouldn't have this problem uh, with these exchanges. Instead, they were working with Sam Backman Fried, which a lot of people forget to write uh, laws to stop the other exchanges, right? And that's what typically happens at the SEC. You get big enough, the SEC becomes your partner instead of your enemy. And that's the way the SEC has worked even since the 90s. And I've worked on Wall Street during that time. And all the little firms get get put out of business. And all the big guys gobble up their customers. And then they take their book um, to the big firms. And that's what happened on Wall Street all throughout. So America's great at one thing, amassing capital. And I think capitalism is a game. And some guys are really good at it. And some guys aren't. And Justin said, where else is good? A lot of places beat America on a lot of different things, but not on capital. But if they keep this up, that capital is leaving the U.S. The U.S. will not remain on top. 
Cool. I think it's a good place to wrap it up. Final words, guys. Ryan Scott. Yeah, I, I, A, we'll be back tomorrow, of course, as you mentioned, 10, 15 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. We're figuring out what channel uh, that will be on. Likely we'll do it on Joa's. Like let's do it on Joa's channel. Yeah. <laughs> I like that idea. Let's, let's, do, uh, let, let's do a lottery ticket for anyone in the audience. We'll have it on your channel now. So, uh, uh, trust you to do that. I want to. I just want to give a quick shout out and thank you to uh, Melrose PR Um and they're at Melrose PR for uh, handling our the press release on this like overnight. Yeah, 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 now. And Eleanor, you covered us in Fox Business, so thank you to you uh, as well. I mean, yesterday we had we're over I think three hundred thousand listens on yesterday's show, so I think it's fair to say we're onto something here. Yeah, you know, we. I'm, I'm very excited about it. I think it's uh, super excited. I think uh, we're going to grow from strength to strength. I think tomorrow we're going to do it on my channel. So we'll see you guys in time. Yo, yo, okay, guys, everyone, it's going to be on Rand's channel. So anyone that wants to take a day off tomorrow from Twitter, tomorrow's the day. It's going to be a day off. It's going to be Rand's channel. It's going to be Rand's channel. <laughs> no, on a serious note as well. And if you want to come on the show as well, make sure you DM me or DM Ran, um, and our teams will respond to you. And if you want to work with us for incubation, etc., again, we've all partnered with this together, all three of us. Just DM me and, and uh, the team will sort that out. But I think Maya, I think Maya, I think we should set up an email address. I think we should. No, you're crazy. I just went crazy. No, bro. I just went crazy on Fred in the group. Like, yeah, give them an email. Man, people are like now in the toilet, in the shower with their girlfriend, on the car, walking a dog. You expect them to find their phone, take it out, write an email, not mis- misspell it, and then go to their Gmail and send an email. You got to reduce friction, man. Yeah, none of you. Uh, I can just put it out there, guys. Don't bother me about any of this shit. You'll never. No, guys, response. please mail us mail mail a request. Mail a request at PO Box one one three in Brunswick East in Australia. This is my my Australian business's head office. So just mail us there any request you need, and then we'll forward it to Fred and Ryan in South Africa, and they'll attend to it. I think this is the best way to keep track of everything. Ryan, you're good with that? Okay. <laughs> he gave up on us guys uh, i know ray mario you need to go to sleep by the way guys to do this we've uh put mario four hours behind on his already non-existent sleep schedule so uh thank you for that to all the guests uh amazing you guys well i'm sure we'll be speaking a lot more in the future and uh i think we'll just go ahead and wrap it now happy friday hope everybody has an amazing weekend we will see and make sure guys just remember rand's show, the show will be on rand's channel tomorrow so make sure you follow him and put reminders etc there and uh, we'll see you tomorrow bye yeah we'll get that link up bye